Good morning, Woodside. Wow, that is chipper. Unexpected. I assumed many of you would still be full from last night. I trust you've had and will continue to have a memorable Christmas with you and your family celebrating the coming of our Lord. And for those of you watching at home, I am assuming you're probably still in the same PJs you put on after the Christmas Eve service. Well done. We are going to take communion later on in the service, so for those of you at home, if you would make time to go find the elements at some point, that would be excellent. And since this morning we're still so close to the heart of Christmas, I thought we would continue in our Advent series. As one of our congregants told me a couple weeks ago, you can't overdo Christmas. And for the most part, I agree, for the most part. And so I've titled this sermon, Christmas is Coming, and I'm here to remind you that you have 364 days to get your things in order before Christmas arrives. But did anybody else feel like this year there were maybe a few more keeners out there? Anyone else? I was driving to church at about 8 a.m., November the 1st. I drove by a house. Christmas lights are up. Tree is in the window. Canadian entire inflatables littering the lawn. I was like, too soon, man. You must have been out there on Halloween getting all of that ready. It reminded me of a classmate I had in college who preferred to write her papers while listening to Christmas carols, which is fine, first semester, it's December. But second or third, we're in April or August, and it's a little bit annoying. Your gut, I don't know if maybe your gut's not like mine. Mine is like crazy. The little alert goes off. And as I thought about that more this year, I thought maybe crazy's the wrong thing. Maybe they're just really excited. Maybe they love Christmas. Maybe my classmate and that family on First Street just can't wait. It's, that's really what Advent is for, right? It's to build our anticipation about the coming of our Lord. And as we walked towards Christ's birth this year with ever-growing joy through the Gospel of John, we've been doing that so that by the time we get to Christmas Eve, we have the appropriate amount of excitement, the fitting amount of we can't wait any longer for one of the most significant events in human history. That is a good thing. Kids, did some of you feel like that this year? Like you could hardly wait to open your presents? Or your stocking? Or maybe you could hardly wait to see grandma and grandpa? I had a similar kind of excitement like that this year because Katie and I were expecting our first child in February. And so when the calendar flipped over to 2021, I could hardly wait anymore. Then February shows up, and I know we're in the last days. That level's just climbing. Then we get to the due date. I'm, we're in the final hours. That gauge is just bouncing off peak. Then we pass the due date. Whew, that was unbearable. I remember saying to Katie, bring me our kid. I, it was too much to bear. And friends, all of those feelings, those attitudes, they are quite fitting at Christmas. They belong. We are right to sense the significance in the lead-up to Jesus' birth. Advent means coming after all. And this year, we've been preparing our hearts for his coming through the Gospel of John. We looked at 
the first chapter, those first few verses, those astounding titles and descriptions of this child who is going to become our savior. And just on Friday night, we were reminded that this little baby is actually the light of the world. And so this morning, we're gonna continue in the spirit of Advent, and we're going to continue with John. But just before we do, would you join with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning again for sending your Son to earth to rescue and restore. Lord, we remember Jesus Christ and we submit to him. This morning, would you speak to us through your word and by your spirit? God, we want to hear from you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned before, we've been going through the Gospel of John this fall, and I said we would continue with John, just not in his Gospel. We're going to look at another one of John's writings, one of his letters to the church, to help us think about Advent. So before we get there, let's refresh our memories. Who's John? Pastor Dan unpacked this for us like a couple months ago, so maybe you forget. Well, John is one of the disciples of Jesus, right? He's one of the 12. He becomes an apostle of our Lord. He's the brother of James, and him and James were fishermen from the same port as Peter and Andrew. And when Jesus shows up, John gets up, he leaves his home, he leaves his livelihood to follow Jesus. In God's word, he's referred to as the disciple who Jesus loved. He's actually given responsibility for caring for Mary by Christ on the cross. That's showing us the closeness of their relationship. And after Jesus' ascension, John goes on to write three letters to the churches as well as the book of Revelation. And so this morning, we're going to look at part of one of those letters that actually talks about anticipation, about longing for Christ's coming and waiting for him. Because all of those descriptions that we used earlier about that sense of excitement that we feel at Christmas, all of those can be used for us as Christians every day. Christ is coming, friends. He's coming back. At, at Christmas, Advent sort of keeps Christ's first coming in the forefront of our minds, right? But don't we struggle to keep Christ's return in the forefront of our minds? I know I find it a challenge. And so I'm, I'm thankful for God's word for reminding me what's more real, what's a greater reality than the temporal things that I'm often consumed with. I'm thankful that John wrote to us. And also thankfully, John is always telling us why he's writing. In his gospel, he says that he's writing so that we may believe in Jesus Christ. And at the end of 1 John, he tells us that he's writing his letters to those who do believe so that we will know that we have eternal life. So the gospel's written so that we'll believe once we do believe. The letters are written so that we will know we have eternal life. So if you would, you could turn with me to 1 John and chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 17, and it will also be on the screen. Chapter 2 and verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. 
But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you'll notice in there that John is going to continually use contrasting images of time for us. He's going to talk about things that are here and now and things that are to come, things that are present versus things that are eternal, things that are passing away, things that go on forever. And all of those comparisons revolve around time. And John almost sort of proposes time as a type of currency. Like, time has value, and therefore, the amount of time something is going to take is important. The longer, the more valuable. And not only is time given value by John, but he's also telling us that there isn't much of it. Time's actually running out. It's being used up. It's approaching its end. So just like Christmas, the Advent season walks along and then culminates in an event, Christmas, which brings to end a measure of time, so too human history is marching along towards an event that should be anticipated. And so John is admonishing us that we should be careful how we measure and how we spend our time. So let's unpack, and we will begin in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. And so we notice some time markers in there right away, don't we? Things are passing away. They're ending, then there's these other things that are forever. He uses the phrase, the last hour, twice. And so what is the thrust of what John wants to remind believers of? Well, he is focusing them, which means by extension, he is focusing us on the brevity, the shortness of time left in our present understanding of reality. And he is also focusing us on the longevity, the longness of time in the next reality. This image is sort of like you're playing a strategy game where your turns are timed and your friend has completed their turn and has subsequently overturned the sand dial 
that tells you just how long you have left to act. John is saying that our chance to decide our turn is in the last hour. When it expires, something else is going to happen that won't be like what it was like when we were waiting. And he gives believers this incredible encouragement. He says that, yes, the world is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Forever. Paul says nearly the identical thing in 1 Corinthians 7 when he tells us that this world in its present form is passing away. But John goes on. We'll go to verse 19. He says, They, which are the Antichrists, from verse 18, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you, and if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And so now John starts describing these antichrists. Why? What is the point of that? He, he tells us right in verse 18, he says that one of the ways that we know we are in the last hour is that we can see these antichrists. Now, we better define that term before we get too lost in it. And John does that for us. Look at what he says. He says very plainly that when he says the word antichrist here, he is talking about someone that denies Jesus Christ. Not the great antichrist figure of the future, but of contemporary people. And maybe the scary part for us is that John is saying that these people came from within the church. He says they were with us. They went out from us, but now we see plainly that they're actually not Christians, but in fact, they stand opposed to Jesus Christ. Now, he is not talking about a Christian that misses a Sunday or two. He is talking about people who deliberately teach falsehoods about Jesus Christ. And that's really what the dividing factor is here between Christians that John is talking to and Antichrist that John is talking about. You see it right there. It all revolves around the truth of Jesus Christ. John says that these people, they're, they're liars, they're deceivers. That's the same words that are used for the adversary, Satan. It's strong terms. But then John again encourages believers. He says, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. I'm writing to you because you do. He says, abide with the truth, and then you will abide with Jesus. He even tells us what is promised for us in verse 25. Eternal life. Eternal life. We could talk all morning about antichrists and false teachers and those standing against the truth of God, but that actually isn't what John is focusing on here. He's just using them as sort of a proof for his bigger point, 
which is we're in the last hour. This last hour, that's a phrase that John uses, and it's sort of echoed by Peter and Paul in their writings also. It has the same sense in Scripture, sometimes the exact same words as these phrases, the last days, the last times, the day that draws near, the time that draws near. All of these phrases are indicating the same thing. Something is about to end. There is an event that is going to take place shortly that will change one era of time into the next. This is a phrase of urgency, of warning sometimes. And John actually uses one of these phrases again in another one of his writings, and that's the book of Revelation, which opens with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The time is near. The last hour must soon take place. You can picture that sand dial expiring. And as Christians, we know what John is talking about. We know. He's saying that Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, is going to return physically to earth soon. He says it must take place soon. And so the period of time between him physically leaving earth at ascension and Jesus physically returning to earth, those are the last days. These are the final hours. And so, friends, Christmas is coming. He's coming. He's coming back. We, as the faithful for, of Christ, for the last 2,000 years, have been living in a real season of Advent. We have been, at our best, preparing. Right? We've been retelling the story over and over again. We've been growing in our excitement, in our longing to meet our Savior. We've been looking for Him. We've been staying awake and alert. But it's hard, right? It's hard. It's hard for me. I find I am way more intentional about preparing for Christ's first coming around this time of year than I am about preparing for his imminent return at any other point in the year, right? Like, I don't wake up with the same amount of excitement for Christ's coming in June as I do in December. Some of you are maybe like me, and you had your Christmas shopping done, like, moments before you delivered the gift. <laughs> we get after it, don't we? Like, we know that there are things to do before that day comes, and we act like it. We put it in gear. Now, I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about my own heart here, but I don't live in that joyful sense of urgency for Christ's return. And so how do we live in this last hour, in this season of Advent? What does John tell us is the method of a Christian as they navigate the last hour? Well, he really delivers it to start the chapter. So if you would turn with me to verse 1 in chapter 2, 
We'll begin there. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's reminding us of the shortness of time so that we may not sin. He goes on in verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And he goes on in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so John gives us some simple instructions for these last days. He gives us a couple deliverables, right? Keep from sin. Keep his commandments. Keep his word. Verse 29 called that practicing righteousness. And John basically summarizes those things at the end of verse 6. So how should Christians live in the last hour? He says, we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The same way in which he walked. Isn't that an amazing phrase? You've got to think about John here. That's literally what John did. When he met Jesus, he got up from whatever he was doing, and he began to walk. And then he walked in the same direction as Jesus Christ for three years, and then he continued to walk in that direction until his death. John is painting for us a picture of discipleship, and it's one that he knows very intimately. And it's so simple. As little Christ ones, as Christians, our walking ought to look an awful lot like the Christ we claim to be following. This is the long walk in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson calls it. This is the walking in truth and love, learning to walk in the love of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, we have his instructions. We have his life to imitate. And it's a simple instruction. It's just not easy. We might even be tempted to wonder, is it possible? Like John says that if I don't keep his commands... The truth is not in me. That's frightening. I've messed up. I messed up today. I had prideful thoughts this morning. So do I have to clamor and effort myself into a righteous position in order to do well in these last days? Is this instruction even possible? Let's go back to verse 1. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. It goes on in verse 27 and 28. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Friends, 
It's possible. It's made possible for us through Jesus. If any of us sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus. It's the essence of our faith. We're clinging to, in faith, that Jesus Christ graciously took the punishment for our sins and gifted us his righteousness. And now he acts as our legal defense, as our advocate in the throne room of God. And so if the accuser comes to make a case against us, our defender pleads our case to the Father. And more than pleading our case, he takes our place. This is the glory of Christ's victory. Notice that that gives us here and now implications. This isn't just true for when we die, although it is. It matters right now in our day today. If, probably when, you and I sin today, you are still declared righteous before God by the perfect life of Christ and his advocating on your behalf. Think of the significance of that. And John gives us a special word for how this relationship with Jesus, this walking in his way, ought to look, how it plays out in our day-to-day. Did you catch that word? It's repeated over and over again in these verses. It's the word abide. It's used ten times in this chapter alone. That's pointing at significance. This is the Greek word meno. It's the verb to stay. To stay in a given place or state or relationship. To continue, to dwell, to endure, to be present, to stand, to remain. This is the how of having our walking look like Christ's. We stay with him. We are to continue with him. We are to dwell with him, to endure with him. We remain with him. This is a word that should describe our heart's place, the location of our heart. John says we are to meno in Jesus, to abide in him. And John also says that Jesus menos with us, that his anointing dwells with us. Christ is for us as our advocate, and so we abide in him and we walk like him. And now, this often reminds us of a name for Jesus that we use at Christmas time, Emmanuel. He's God with us, and he abides with us by his spirit, who is also called our advocate. Isn't that an incredible purpose revealed to us by God our Father? He intends to have his Son return to earth to make all things new. Just like he intended to have his Son come to earth to seek and save that which was lost. And in the meantime, he promises to stay with us. That's a verb. That's an action word. He's doing something for you and I, Christian. He is abiding with us still by his Holy Spirit and encouraging us to imitate him by remaining in him. 
So this waiting for his return isn't like us doing a bunch of things down here while he looks on until finally he's like, okay, it's time to come get them. No, no. He is active too. In this waiting, he has made it abundantly clear that he is active too. I don't know, sometimes as Christians, I think we get sort of lost in the list of commands, right? Things we have to follow. We get overwhelmed. But John basically gives us the essence of the commandments right here. Abide with Jesus. Walk like Jesus. He makes it really simple. That is not to diminish our need, and it is a need to keep ourselves from sin, to keep God's commandments, to keep God's word. Those things are absolutely critical to living the Christian life. It's just that if we are abiding with him, living with Jesus, and if we are walking like him, walking towards him, we won't miss those things. We can't. They're intertwined. It's a much bigger thing to do a heart check on yourself like Am I abiding with Jesus? Am I making him first in all of my things? That's a much bigger self-reflection than am I keeping from this specific sin? And so, friends, Christmas is coming. I don't mean that in a silly or sarcastic way. I mean that it is good for us to be reminded that there is an event that will take place in human history that is unfolding and that we are in the last hours of its arrival. I mean that this event is going to inaugurate not just a king, the king of kings, not just some lord. This is the lord of lords. This will be the sort of inauguration where knees will not have the option not to bow. Tongues will not have the option not to confess. Everyone is going to give deference, give reverence to this conqueror. To his reign, there is going to be no end. He is going to govern perfectly and eternally. The Prince of Peace is going to finally and fully get crowned. And we are going to be invited into the presence of of the triune God who lives in perfect love within himself, and he is going to offer that love to us forever. We get just a taste of that now. Because, friends, the prince is walking with us. The king is dwelling with us. The spirit of the Lord is abiding with us. This life that we lead, it's not distant from him. We do not have to feel like we are far from him, like we've been left to enact his will in this world all on our own. We have these beautiful promises from him given through his apostle John, who knew these promises in a very intimate way. And so I hope over the next week, as you wrap up and unwrap the rest of your Christmas season, I hope that you will look forward with anticipation to meeting your king. I hope that you will remember that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I hope you will walk 
in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending us your son. We love him, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.